0: Well, tonight we are going to begin a new part of our study as we look at the doctrine of salvation. We're going to look tonight as part of a three-part study on the accomplishment of salvation. The accomplishment of salvation, we're going to look at this very important topic called atonement. Now, just by way of review, as I've said already, we can take the doctrine of salvation and really categorize it into three components, or three categories. The first one being the arrangement of salvation, which is an act of God and His decrees before time. We looked at an aspect of that last week as we looked at the doctrine of election. That then leads to the accomplishment of salvation as a historical event, One historical event, the climactic one being the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that is what we'll call atonement. And then we talk about the application of this work of salvation in relative time, relative to each individual person who comes to faith, who is drawn by God and his sovereign calling to faith. And we can call that regeneration and all of that which regeneration is. Produces. So tonight we are going to focus on atonement. Tonight we'll provide a, a, a survey of this doctrine of atonement. And then uh, in two weeks' time, next week we're not meeting. Note that, men. Next Wednesday we are not meeting because of the Truth Matters conference that is taking place here next week. Next week we're not meeting. But then the week after we'll meet again. We'll look at another aspect of atonement called propitiation. And then after that, we'll also look at uh, what we call redemption. And all of these really are related terms related to this topic of atonement. The topic or the concept of atonement is at the heart of almost all religions. You could say that there's perhaps some religions out there that just deny the reality of sin altogether and make it their ambition to convince people there is no such thing as sin. But most religions recognize the reality that human beings have sinned. There is this innate recognition that we have committed offenses against a holy God, and that raises the question, among all inhabitants of this earth, what must be done to pay the penalty of these offenses? And so religion attempts to explain how it is possible to atone for one's sin or how to pay the price. That's what atonement really is. How is the penalty for sin paid? All religions of the world or most religions of the world are focused on this question. How are are one's sins atoned for? How is the penalty for sin paid? And what is unique is that Biblical Christianity alone, in contradiction to all the other religions of this world that have any concept of atonement, biblical Christianity alone asserts that God is the one who accomplishes the atonement. God is the one who accomplishes the atonement, not the offender. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. Biblical Christianity is about the one who is offended, that is, a holy and righteous God. He is the one who makes atonement for sin. And this is the very essence of the gospel. In fact, this is so central to what the Christian gospel is all about that Paul says it this way in some very poignant terms. When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4, to 4, he says these words. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Paul essentially crystallizes the entire gospel and asserts these things. And it focuses on the concept of atonement. Christ died for our sins. That is the gospel in a nutshell. This is what Paul said is of first importance. He recognizes that through this term first importance. That there are other things of secondary importance. But the atonement is a matter of first importance. It is a matter of life and death. It is a non-negotiable. It is the very center Of the Christian message. And yet this center. This foundational aspect of the Christian message. Is exactly that. Which all other religions despise. About biblical Christianity. Again Paul recognized this in the same letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23. He said we preach Christ crucified. Again another distillation of the gospel. It's focused on atonement. This must be discussed in the gospel presentation. He said, we preach Christ crucified. Not just Christ as a good man. Not just Christ as a a kind leader, a shepherd, but Christ crucified. But then he says this, to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. And we certainly see that when we look at the religions of the world. In paganism, for example, just one illustration, you have something called the Alexaminos Graffito in Rome. It's a piece of Roman graffiti that dates to about 200 A.D. So about 170 years after the crucifixion of Christ, you you have this graffiti etched into some plaster in a, Wall of a room near Palatine Hill in Rome. It is one of the earliest surviving depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus. And shown in that image is a young man by the name of Alexamenos worshiping a crucified donkey headed figure. And the Greek inscription mockingly states Alexamenos worships his God. That was the Roman pagan perception of crucifixion. The cross, of course, was the utmost picture of shame. The Romans had perfected its torture. And so anybody who died on a cross was a a shame to the Romans. If you look at Islam, Islam vehemently rejects the concept of substitutionary atonement. You see it in the Quran mentioned several times that no soul Shall bear another's burden. And each man shall reap the fruits of his own deeds. And of course, Muslims reject the idea that Jesus died on the cross. They have a place for Jesus as a great prophet, but he does not die on the cross. Either someone else took his place, Judas Iscariot, for example, sometimes there's views that he was the one who was crucified, or Jesus simply swooned on the cross, but Muslims vehemently reject the idea of a substitution, a sacrifice. Last year, I was on a a flight to Dallas, and I sat beside a very well-educated Muslim preacher. We spent the time discussing the differences, and we came down to this very issue. How do you atone for your sins? And for the Muslim, it is not Jesus who atones for the sin. Muslims deny vehemently, the center of the Christian gospel. To them, the cross is foolishness. In Hinduism, it's the same thing. Let me read the words of Gandhi, who said this, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but there was... But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Buddhism is no different. There's an interesting episode in the life of Adoniram Judson, a missionary who went, a 19th century missionary who went to minister in the country of Burma, Myanmar. And as as Adoniram Judson translated the scriptures into Burmese. He had a language teacher who would help him. The language teacher was Buddhist. And and, and Adonai Judson worked with this language teacher for a significant period of time. And and there was a sense in which this language teacher was being drawn to the message of the gospel. And so he approached Adonai Judson and said, "I, I want to become a Christian. I want to become a disciple of Jesus. And Judson, recognizing what was at stake, began to ask him questions. And He asked his teacher this question, Do you believe all that is contained in the book of St. Matthew that I've given you? In particular, do you believe that the Son of God died on a cross? The language teacher responded and said, Ah, you have caught me now. I believe that he suffered death, but I cannot admit that he suffered the shameful death of the cross. Judson responded this way, therefore, you are not a disciple of Christ. A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the word of God. Secularism also denounces the atonement offered in Scripture. One of uh, one, one statement I'll read probably summarizes best the view of secularism. Sir A.J. iyer a British philosopher, said this with respect to all the religions he considered to be of historical importance. He said this, that Christianity may be the worst of them all because it proclaims, quote, the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. It's the view of secularism. The world hates the concept of atonement as presented in the Bible. They will adhere to various versions of atonement, but they vehemently reject the biblical testimony of atonement. You see, when it comes right down to it, if we are to discern a man's theology in a brief moment, just ask him to define atonement. How does one have the penalty of his sin paid for? That question brings out a man's theology instantly. The concept of atonement, as demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, is the center of the gospel. And either the person responding will will put his finger on this and say, "This this is the gospel. Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for my sin. Or they'll say something else, which will immediately force you to question whether they have understood the gospel. That Christ died for me, is a fundamental tenet of saving faith. And I would say this, if a person does not understand this, it may be that they can't articulate it, but if they don't understand it, or if they articulate a rejection of this concept, we must continue our work of evangelization of that individual. They have not understood the biblical gospel, that which is of first importance. Yet sadly, many and we could even say genuine Christians only understand this center, this foundational, this fundamental tenet of the gospel superficially. Just this morning, I read a blog post by Conrad Bayway, preacher, pastor in Zambia, Africa. And he said this, there's a perception in the minds of many preachers that the depth of teaching they got on the atonement during their Bible college days is only for them as preachers, that it would be too deep for the ordinary Christian in the pew. This perception is entirely false. It is also why, over time and across generations, churches lose the truth. He goes on to say, A tree with shallow roots will easily be uprooted when howling winds blow, but the ones with deep roots will remain standing. In the same way, individuals with with a shallow understanding of Christ's work on the cross are easily unsettled by life's trials. They are also easily misled by popular false teachings. This happens because false teachers often use scriptural words but fill them with wrong meanings and interpretations. Only well-taught minds will be able to pick that up and reject the error. And that's why we're here on Wednesday evenings. You men need to have well-taught minds in order to be able to pick up on the error and reject it. And that will make all the difference in your lives. Now as we talk about this doctrine of atonement, we need to again focus on the key terms and define them accurately. And what we're going to look at this evening are three key terms. They actually All are joined together in one statement, but we have to look at them uh, first individually before we put them all together. The three terms are atonement, the term penal, and then number three, the term substitution. When it comes to the atonement, these are fundamental terms. Let's define them. First of all, atonement. Atonement. Wayne Grudem gives this very basic definition of atonement. He says the atonement is the saving work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So he's pointing to the fact that the atonement is a historical event. It is salvation accomplished. In the life and death of Jesus Christ in what he did to earn our salvation. MacArthur and Mayhew provide this definition. The atonement is that aspect of the work of Christ and particularly his death that secures the restoration of the fellowship between individual believers and God. So the key idea here is this, in the atonement, it is bringing a holy God and a corrupt sinner into harmony. And so with respect to the atonement, it is the payment for sin and the provision of righteousness as the way of salvation, the payment for sin and the provision of righteousness, Let me explain this a little bit further. And we really find this term atone really in the Old Testament, the the specific term. And that Hebrew verb means to cover, has the idea of to cover sin, to cover guilt. Now, the English word atonement really has a 16th century uh, origination. And it really means this, atonement, kind of a strange concept, but you can see those Words coming together at one meant. And so the word atonement emphasizes unity. It emphasizes harmony. It emphasizes peace. That's what atonement emphasizes. And, and really, that emphasizes the result of atonement. And here are the, the presuppositions that go into it. First of all, that God is perfectly righteous, human beings are thoroughly corrupt. So the concept of atonement answers this question. How can the two, righteous God and sinful man, be brought together? How can they be reconciled? That's that's the big issue behind this term atonement. A perfectly righteous God, separate from sin, and totally depraved sinners... Who are corrupt in everything that they are, how can those two be brought to peace? How can they dwell in unity? How can there be an at-one-ment between them? And that's why we said that the atonement deals with the issue of the payment of the penalty and the provision of righteousness. It is not just that our sin is paid for, it is also that through the atonement that we are given the righteousness that we need to dwell with God in peace. That's the concept of atonement. Payment for sin, provision of righteousness, as a righteous God and a sinner are brought together. Now, let's look at the second term, the term penal. Penal, the adjective Penal relates to the concept of punishment, particularly the punishment of offenders for violations of the law. So we use this term penal even in our vocabulary today. We can use it to refer to the penal code, right? That's the laws that prescribe punishments for certain crimes. We talk about a penal colony, the place where those who have offended the law receive the punishment for the crimes they have committed. We talk about penal reforms. The word penalize comes from the word penal and the word penalty. That's all related. And so at at root, the, the concept of penal has the idea of punishment related to violations of the law. Now, we use this adjective penal to refer to the atonement of the making of harmony between holy, righteous God and sinful man. It's not just that we bring them together and say, just forget about everything. Let's just turn a new page and just get along together. That's not what atonement is because atonement is penal. There must be a payment of a penalty. And so when we use Penal to describe the atonement, we are indicating that the process of bringing reconciliation involved the payment of the penalty for the sins committed for each and every one. This payment, this payment requires death. Perfect righteousness requires death even for a single sin. Romans 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the person who sins shall die. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, even eating of the fruit from the tree brought death. That one sin was sufficient to bring death. And this death is not merely death in the sense of the absence of physical life, but the word death here implies the sense of punishment for sin. That when a person dies spiritually, he begins to taste the punishment of a sin. And that punishment will bring physical death, and then it will bring an eternal death of eternal consequences. So this concept of penal, when we use it to describe the atonement, anchors the atonement in the world of divine law and perfect justice. On one hand, the concept of penal atonement highlights God's justice. It brings it to the forefront. It reminds us of the fact that sin requires it requires payment. It requires punishment. Sin cannot just be forgotten. It cannot be swept under the rug. Righteousness, pure righteousness, perfect righteousness requires that each and every sin meet its punishment. Now that brings us to the third important term. We have atonement, the bringing together of two parties where one is offended the other at one mint. You have the concept of penal, the concept of paying a penalty for a sin committed, and then you have this third one, substitution. And if the word penal emphasized God's justice, this word substitution now is going to bring to the forefront God's love. The word substitution, if we were to define it simply, it refers to the act of replacing one person or thing with another. Very simple, straightforward term. Substitution. Substitution. Now, some of you have heard of a, a synonym that's often used in this same discussion. The term vicarious. Vicarious. Vicarious refers to something performed, received, or exercised in the place of another. And so it's really a synonym here. Sometimes you'll hear of substitutionary atonement, sometimes you'll hear theologians talk about vicarious atonement. It's essentially the same thing. It talks about something being performed, received, or exercised in the place of another. So someone else does the paying for sin. That's a vicarious atonement. Now, when used to describe the atonement, it therefore indicates that the process of bringing reconciliation between a perfectly righteous God and a, an offensive sinner involves Someone else paying the price. That's what substitutionary atonement involves. And this is that doctrine which is utterly absent from all other religions. And it is that doctrine which all other religions despise in Christianity. That someone else stands in the stead. Someone else receives something in the place of the guilty sinner. Now, the concept of substitution is found throughout the Bible. In fact, you could go and into the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and you could trace out evidence of substitution in, in several contexts. Just think of that ram whose, whose antlers were caught in the bush in Genesis chapter 22, and that ram is sacrificed on the altar instead of Isaac. Substitution. But the concept of substitution particularly comes out in the sacrificial system. We could look at all kinds of of texts for this, but Leviticus chapter 16 is particularly important. In fact, just an hour or two ago, ended a very important day in the Jewish calendar. Anybody know what day that was? Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And according to the Old Testament system, the Old Covenant system, Leviticus chapter 16, you had two goats that were substitutes. One was slaughtered, one was, one was slain, and its blood was sprinkled around the holy place and all the utensils of the sacrificial system in that day. But there was also something called the scapegoat. And according to Leviticus 16 verses 20 to 22, Aaron would come and lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and would confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness and the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. There is the concept of substitution, and that concept grows as revelation progresses until you get to the cross. And Jesus Christ, who takes upon him self all the sins of those who would ever believe, and he takes every single one of their transgressions and pays the penalty this is what we call penal substitutionary atonement it's a very important concept now some of you may have never uttered those words especially all in one sentence but let me say this that this is a cardinal doctrine this is one that one thing that you must you must understand you must know and must cherish. In defining penal substitutionary atonement, MacArthur and Mayhew write this, the view of the atonement, this is the view of the atonement that Christ's death is a sacrifice offered in payment of the penalty of our sins. It is accepted by God the Father as the satisfaction in place of the penalty due to believers in Christ. J.I. Packer in his definition says this, the notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won us forgiveness adoption, and glory. That's penal substitutionary atonement. And man, I encourage you to make it your ambition in the next day or two to come up with a definition of penal substitutionary atonement that is biblical and burn it into your memories. Now, one of the greatest chapters on penal substitutionary atonement is Isaiah 53, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's part of your study questions that you'll take home with you. But Let me read verses 4 to 6 of Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, speaking prophetically here of the servant. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, when we talk about the atonement, now I want to draw out some essential characteristics. We've defined it. It is penal. It is substitutionary. It's atonement. Let's talk about some essential characteristics. We're going to talk about five of them very quickly. We're going to note that the atonement was necessitated by sin. The atonement was necessitated by sin. Secondly, it was motivated by love and justice. Thirdly, it is substitutionary in nature. Fourth, it is contingent upon the work of Christ. And fifth, it is efficacious in achievement. Let's look at each one of these. Number one, necessitated by sin. What necessitates the atonement? In a word, it is depravity. It is sin. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Romans 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says in that text of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once and for all. So the death of Christ on the cross is necessitated by sin. There was no other way. Now, some have suggested That penal substitutionary atonement could have been avoided. That it was merely a choice of God. That he chose out of several possibilities that he could have saved sinners apart from the death of Christ. This is called the hypothetical necessity view. It was only necessary because God so chose to pay the penalty that way. And some theologians will say that God could have erased our sin. Paid the debt simply by saying... By divine fiat, in other words, by his words alone, let there be forgiveness, and there was forgiveness. Some suggest that that could have happened. But the Bible describes sin in such such ugly descriptions, as so antithetical to God's righteous character, that we see that the payment for sin required the greatest Possible expression of divine justice. That next to the punishment of sinners for eternity in hell. The only way that sin could be truly paid for. Is if God himself paid a price. And a great one at that. You see in the end contrary to what the critics say about Penal substitutionary atonement. This was inescapable. Sin is so wretched. Sin is so ugly. It requires such a payment that it cost God the life of his son. John Murray says it this way in a word. While it was not inherently necessary for God to save sinners. He didn't need to save us. But, once salvation had been arranged, once it had been purposed, then it was necessary to secure through salvation, through a a satisfaction that could be rendered only through a substitutionary sacrifice and blood-bought redemption. You see, when we talk about the atonement, we must remember it is necessitated by sin. And I want you to hold on to that. We're going to get to it in just a moment, that thought once more. But secondly, we must recognize that, that atonement was also motivated by both love and justice. It was motivated by love. Again, contrary to the critics of penal substitutionary atonement who say it is this great, it's this great illustration of divine child abuse. What we see is that the atonement expresses God's love in unparalleled ways. John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that giving of the only begotten son has in view the cross. Romans 5 verse 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ was brought about by the love of God for us. First John 4 verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That was the first cause. And that cause led to him sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, John Murray says this, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. Now understand that carefully. It's not that God loves us because first Christ died for us. That's getting it wrong in order. It is that God loves those. He has chosen to receive his special mercy. He loves them. He's motivated by love. And it is that which motivates him to give his son. God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement as Murray goes on to say, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. I like what Octavius Winslow said. He said this Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews. For envy, but the Father, for love. In the atonement, we also see that it is motivated by justice, as we've already said, Ezekiel eighteen twenty. The person who sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. Romans six verse twenty three. And so, in the cross, we not only see that the cross becomes the great pulpit of God's love. We see in the cross. That it becomes the great pulpit of God's justice. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He does not leave sin unpunished. The sins that you committed in your unbelieving life. The sins that you committed today. The sins that you will commit in the future. Even as a believer. Those things were not just ignored. Every one of those sins. Met justice. Every one of them. Every single individual sin. Met justice. In the cross. Penal substitutionary atonement then. Helps us understand. The love and the justice. Of God. Number three. The atonement is substitutionary in nature. We've already covered this. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. We cannot conceive of the atonement, biblically speaking, apart from substitution. The prophet says, our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging, we are healed. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Perhaps the greatest statement here is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Or better translated as, he made him who knew no sin, he made him the object of punishment. He made him sin itself on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. In him, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. You're redeemed by precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It is a substitution. It is substitutionary in nature. Number four, it is contingent upon the work of Christ. To achieve atonement, to achieve peace and unity between a righteous God and a sinful man, both the payment of sin and the provision of righteousness was necessary for the two to dwell in harmony. And therefore, Christ's obedience and his payment for disobedience are both needed in the atonement. His, his active obedience to the will of his Father is needed in the atonement, it becomes our righteousness. And his payment for disobedience, sometimes called his passive obedience. His payment for disobedience, his payment for sin is also needed in the atonement. In both of these regards, his active righteousness, that which he did to obey and to please the Father, as well as his serving as the payment for sin, both of these things are needed in the atonement. MacArthur and Mayhew said this, The perfect standard of God's righteousness expressed in his law consisted of two key aspects. Prescriptive commands that required full obedience. That's the first one. Prescriptive commands that required full obedience. The son had to submit himself to the law. That's even why he was baptized. He didn't need it for the cleansing of sin. He was baptized to obey all righteousness. And every aspect of obedience that Jesus performed, he learned obedience as a son. That was necessary for the atonement. But the second key aspect is this, the penal sanctions for breaking those commands. And you see how Jesus functions, therefore, in his life as this substitute. He did what we could not do and cannot do. And he paid For what we did do. We could never live this life of perfect obedience. You remember the doctrine of total depravity. What does total depravity say? We are unable to please God. Apart from Christ, you are unable. You might try various forms of atonement. You cannot. But Christ came and lived that perfect life. He did what you could not do. He pleased the Father in every way. And then what have you done? Think of the innumerable sins, the transgressions, not only in your pre conversion life, but to this day and to the moment of your death or our rapture, sins. And Christ says, I will pay the penalty for that. And in the work of the atonement, what we find, and we will talk about this more in the months to come, but we receive that perfect righteousness, that provision of righteousness from Christ, and what does He receive from us? He receives from us the guilt, the condemnation, and He pays it. It is contingent upon the work of Christ. Some texts you could look at later: Romans five nineteen, Galatians four four to five, Hebrews five verses eight to nine. But now, number five, it was efficacious in achievement. The atonement was efficacious in achievement. Nothing was thwarted there at the cross. Nothing was thwarted. And this efficaciousness is evidenced in two ways. First of all, it is evidenced in that it is a once-for-all atonement, a once-for-all sacrifice. There was no need for a sacrifice, and there is no future need for a sacrifice for sin. Atonement has been accomplished. First Peter 3, verse 18 says that Christ died for sins once for all. Once for all. And we see that. Same phrase repeated in Romans 6 verse 10, Hebrews 7 verse 27, 9 verse 12 and 28, 10 verse 10. Once for all, once for all, once for all. That's why when Jesus says it is finished, it means it is finished. The atonement has been accomplished. Nothing is left undone. It's been finished. And by the way, that's what makes the Catholic mass so abhorrent. Because every time the Mass is practiced, it is a reminder, it is a message to everyone who partakes that the work of atonement is not yet done. There remains yet another sacrifice. That is not the biblical teaching of atonement. But the atonement was efficacious in another sense. It was efficacious In accomplishing real atonement for everyone who is chosen by God to eternal life. For everyone who would ever believe. Matthew 20 verse 28 says that the son of man did not come to be served but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. John 10 verse 11 says I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep not the goats. Acts 20 verse 28 The elders are to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. And Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church. It is an exclusive love. He gave himself up for her. We will talk about this more and again in the weeks to come. But the atonement was efficacious. Jesus died a real death death. He paid a real price for real sins. The atonement is not just hypothetical in nature. It is real and effective. It pays for the real sins of real people in a real way. It makes salvation not just possible. It makes it a reality. As Paul Tripp said, Jesus didn't purchase savability, he took names to the cross. Now let's look at some practical implications very quickly. Four of them, sin is wretched, God's love is glorious, there's no condemnation, and hope is found only in Jesus. Number one, sin is wretched. Even just one sin, my friend, would require the death of Jesus, even just one. It is so utterly wretched. We sang those words earlier this evening. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Your sin, if you are in Christ, your sin nailed the nails. It was your sin that held him there. And you must remember that the next time that temptation comes your way. Sin is wretched, brothers. Brothers. It's ugly. It required the death of this spotless son of God. Required his payment. This one who did nothing wrong. No deceit in his mouth. So why do you love sin? Why does it attract your attention? Why do you not hate it from the depth of your being? It killed your savior. Sin is wretched. Number two, God's love is glorious. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. These words from the hymnal, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy flow a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, heaven's peace and perfect justice, kissed a guilty world in love. This is the atonement. The cross, as Augustine said, is the great pulpit of God's love. Number three, there is now no condemnation. Paul says this himself in Romans Eight verse 1 after he spent seven chapters talking about the need for righteousness and the provision of righteousness he says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as we sang today Jesus paid it all all everything every individual sin all to him I owe sin had left the crimson stain he washed it white as snow all sins past present and future Sometimes there's this idea, you talk with believers and they say, well, maybe there's an unconfessed sin in my life, and if I don't confess it and I die, I'll go to hell. Listen, beloved, if you are in Christ, that sin has been paid for. There is no condemnation. There is no no statement or decree of punishment that still remains above your head. When the atonement was made, he went into that safety deposit box that had the certificate of your damnation, and he took it out and he burned it. It's gone. There is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to the fourth. There is hope, but it's only found in Jesus. It's not found in these other religions. It's found only in Jesus. As as the apostles say in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which, by which we must be saved. And so, for you who have not yet experienced the application of atonement to your life, you must have the heart of this hymnist who said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress. Dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Some of you may say, I don't know if Christ died for me. Well, flee to him and he will not cast you out. Fly to him. Plead for him to wash you or you die. And he will never cast you asunder. As one writer said, only, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and stand in front of this immense doctrine, the atonement, we recognize that we have only plumbed the surface. We confess that we live so many of our days even without thinking of this doctrine. But we pray that in light of tonight's study, that this would be on the forefront of our minds. And it would it would be in the, 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 the heart of our thinking and that it would cause us to treat sin as what it really is, as wretched. It would be the thing that would enable us to forsake sin and to pursue obedience, that this concept of the atonement would elevate our understanding of your love and your justice, and we would see them in increasing clarity, that we would also see the beauty of what a what atonement accomplished and that there is no decree of condemnation that still rests above us. It was nailed to the cross above the head of Jesus. It was taken away from our account, nailed to his. And as a result, we can live our lives in confidence and assurance. And finally, it gives us the motivation to get out into the world and say, there is only one mediator between you and man. And that is Jesus, the one who paid the penalty. Motivate us, Lord, in those things. We ask this so that your Son may receive the glory due his name because of what he accomplished on the cross. We pray this for his glory's sake.